And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none like there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly, let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble mind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren have borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich, and he brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap and makes them sit with princes and inherit the seat of honor. For the pillars of the Lord are the Lord's. In them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall broken to pieces. Again, stem. against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Alaknach went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. All right, so we got the right passage. We'll see if the sound holds up, and we'll go from there. So Paul said in Philippians 4.4, 4, he said, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Again, in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, he says, Rejoice always. As you look at the last 50 plus years in our country, there's been two kind of distinct realities that if you, you can kind of observe. The first reality is the secularization of American culture. And you see that less people are going to church. While many people still identify as being Christians, the number is far less than it was 50 plus years ago. Very few people tend to have a Christian worldview even if they identify as Christians. Less people would say that their faith is important to them as they would maybe 50 plus years ago. And kind of coupled with that is kind of the loss of influence in society where Christianity has lost its place of prominence. And Christian values are no longer as important as they once were. The 1960s were a period where people were challenging the establishment. And during that time frame, there were a number of changes that happened. For example, in 1962, the Supreme Court ruled that uh, prayer was not to be allowed in schools. The next year, 1963, it was ruled that Bible reading was not to be uh, prescribed in schools. We saw after that, in the 70s, in 1973, the Supreme Court ruled that abortion was legal. Up until the early 70s, blue light laws prevented uh, stores from being open on Sunday with the idea being that people would have time to rest and to go to church and worship. Uh, for a very long time, even in some municipalities, alcohol was prohibited from being sold on Sundays because the idea is that people should be worshiping and spending time with their families. Now most of that has changed. There's only a very, very small uh, couple places in the United States where those laws still exist. And so our culture has secularized to such, to such an extent that no longer does Christianity hold a place of prominence. And not only that, but it's also kind of marginalized if you're a Christian. 
that you can even be looked down upon for being a Christian. So that's the first reality, the secularization of American society where God is kind of removed from the public square. The second reality is the depression of American society. While depression has been around for ages past, forever, up until the 1970s, depression as a diagnosis was something that was considered to be very rare. It was not something that people were said to have very often. It was considered to be the most severe cases. Alan Horowitz, in an, in an article entitled How an Age of Anxiety Became an Age of Depression, says this. He says, in contrast, before the 1970s, depression was usually considered a relatively rare condition involving feelings of intense meaninglessness and worthlessness, often accompanied by vegetative and psychotic symptoms and preoccupation with death and dying. So depression up until the 70s wasn't something that was very common. And if you look at the MMPI data, which the MMPI is kind of the standard psychological test that is given to diagnose psychological disorders, what some researchers did was they compared uh, MMPI data from high school and college students from 1938 and from 2007. And they found that students in 2007 had six to eight, were six to eight times more likely to have depressed, to be diagnosed as being depressed as those in 1938. One researcher named Renee Goodwin from the Department of Epidemiology at Columbia University says this, depression appears to be increasing among Americans overall, especially among youth. And we've seen this increase even in the last, uh, since the turn of the century, the, the number of people struggling with depression has just skyrocketed even in the last 10 years. And so you see these two realities, the secularization of American society and removing God from the public square, and then the depression of American society. And we can't prove that those things are related. Just because they're correlated doesn't mean that one necessarily had to cause one and the other. But the fact that they come together makes us wonder, is there a link between the two? And I would suggest that there is a link between the two. Some other researchers uh, did a study entitled Religious and Spiritual Factors in Depression Review of and Integration of the Research. And in the article, the researchers analyzed and looked at 400 studies that kind of examined the relationship between spirituality and depression. And they found that spirituality and depression uh, kind of uh, they had an inverse relationship, that as spirituality went up, there was less likely, people were less likely to have depressive symptoms. One of the conclusions of the article was this, however, in the majority of studies, everything else being equal, RNS or religion and spiritual involvement is related to less depression, particularly in the context of life stress. So given the fact that these things go hand in hand, the secularization of American culture, the depression of American society, and the fact that research shows that religion and spirituality kind of guards at least somewhat from depression, I think we can say that there is some kind of a relationship there. That the increase in the incidence of depression is at least in part a result of the secularization of society. And I would suggest to you that we maybe consider the, the statement that uh, failure, a failure to rejoice may be a failure to believe. 
A failure to rejoice may be a failure to believe. Now, before we go any further, I want to be very clear, crystal clear, in saying that I'm not saying that all depression is caused by a failure to believe. There are many different things that go into depression. Some of them are biological. Some of them, you know, might be nutrient imbalances. Some of them are related to genetics or um, traumatic experience that have happened to us in the past. And many Christians who struggle with depression, many Christians struggle with depression even though they believe the right thing. So I'm not trying to over-spiritualize the issue and say that you just have to believe and all your depression will go away. So I'm not saying that, but I am saying that it's one possible cause. Just like a person smokes a pack of cigarettes a day, 10 years down the road they get lung cancer. You can say that person, that smoking most likely caused or at least significantly contributed to that lung cancer. But if a person has lung cancer, you can't definitively say that person smoked a pack a day. Maybe they had a genetic defect, maybe uh, they were exposed to secondhand smoke, maybe they were in their workplace and uh, they were exposed to toxic gases. And so in the same way, we can't say that depression is caused by a failure to believe all the time, but it's one possible factor in depression. Failure to rejoice may be a failure to believe. Imagine that my wife calls me up one day and says, I've got some really good news for you. We won a trip to the Bahamas, a seven-day cruise to the Bahamas. I was listening to the radio, and they said the, first per the person who calls in, the 75th caller, would win a cruise, and I called in, and I won the cruise, and we are going to the Bahamas. If that was the case, I would be jumping up and down. I would be really excited about that. I would be calling up my friends and telling them about what just happened. I probably wouldn't be able to get any work done the rest of the day. But imagine the same thing happens, but instead of my wife, it's a number that I've never seen before. A person calls me and says, hello, is this Matthew Ricklebart? <laughs> and I'm like, I, I, I don't know. Like, if you mean Richbart, yes, but not Ricklebart. Well, I'm calling on a recorded line. I just want to let you know that you've won a cruise to the Bahamas, a seven-day cruise. Congratulations. Now, how would I respond to that? I would hang up the phone. <laughs> or if I'm on the computer and I'm on the internet and all of a sudden this pop-up comes up in red and yellow and it's flashing and says, congratulations, you're a winner. You're going to the Bahamas. What would I do? I would click off of that. I wouldn't rejoice like if my wife told me that because I wouldn't believe it. If you don't believe it, you don't rejoice. I believe that the devil and his minions will do anything that he can to keep us in a place of depression, in a place of despair, to keep us ineffective. Helmut Philicke once said this, the glum, sour faces of many Christians, they rather give the impression that instead of coming from the Father's joyful banquet, they have just come from the sheriff who's auctioned off their sins, and now are sorry they can't get them back again. 1 Peter 5.8 says that the devil is a roaring lion. He prowls around seeking whom he might devour. 
And I believe that the devil will use anything that he can to get us down and depressed and ineffective for the kingdom of God. And I wonder with all the things happened, happening this morning, and it's not just the soundboard, it's not just the wrong scripture, there's a number of things that have happened. I wonder if Satan doesn't want us to hear this this morning. Some of us, maybe it's, he attacks our self-esteem. For women, maybe it's our appearance and getting us to compare our appearance with other people. Maybe for men, it's our job, and we compare our job to other people and what's in our bank account. Maybe it's pointing out the reality of injustice and saying, if there's a God, then how could he allow this to happen? Or maybe it's pointing out the reality of our suffering and the things that we're experiencing in our life, and maybe it's Satan whispering in our ear and saying, nothing's going to ever change for you. You better just give up. Maybe it's using social media to get us to feel like we're insignificant, that we have no voice, that nobody cares about what we have to say. I believe that the devil and his minions use many different things in our culture to get us to turn away from the truth, to get us to a place of despair and depression. But the good news is that we have a weapon to fight against the enemy, and that weapon is faith. In Ephesians 6, Paul says this, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So faith is a shield against the evil one. When he, gets, when he tries to attack us with all these things and a host of other things, and he tries to get us to give up, we have the shield of faith when we believe the promises of God and we can ward off of his attacks. If we truly believe the truth of the gospel, which means good news, by the way, if we truly believe it, it will change our perspective. And so for just a few minutes today, I want to look at Hannah's prayer and Hannah's song in this passage. And I believe that as we look at this prayer and this psalm of praise, I think that it can give us some fuel to fight against the enemy, some fuel to fuel our faith and to extinguish the darts of the evil one. And there's three things in this passage I think that Hannah shows us we can rejoice over. First, we can rejoice about what God has done in our past. She says in verse 1, My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. For those of us who are believers in Jesus, we can rejoice over the fact that God has rescued us from an eternity separated from him. We once were in darkness, but he has brought us into light. We once were without hope, but he has given us a new hope and a new future. Because God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to the earth. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He died on the cross and rose again. And then after that, he, he commissioned his disciples to go out and preach the good news that whoever would believe in him could experience life. And for those of us who are believers in Jesus, we've experienced that hope, we've experienced that life, and we can rejoice in the fact that we're not the same people that we used to be. We can look back on the things that we used to struggle with and see the work that God has done in our lives. We can look back and we can see the way that God has provided for us and been there for us. Maybe in times of difficulty where nothing else could get us through, God was there for us. And so we can rejoice in what God has done in our past and especially in the fact that he saved us. Remember the story of the prodigal son described in Luke chapter 15. 
man has two sons, and the one son, the younger son, comes to his father and basically says, give me my share of the inheritance, I want to go my own way, basically saying, I wish you were dead. And so he takes the father's inheritance and he goes and he squanders it on all kinds of riotous living, on prostitutes and all manner of things, wastes all of his father's possessions, has nothing, and then he goes and he works at a pig farm. And he's so hungry that he longs to eat the food that the pigs are eating. He thinks to himself, well, the servants at my father's house ate better than this, so I'll go back to my father's house and maybe he'll let me be a servant. I can't be a son anymore, but maybe he'll let me be a servant. And so he works up the courage to go back home, and as he's on his way home, his father sees him in the distance, runs towards him, puts his arm around, arms around him, puts a robe around him, puts a ring on his finger. And what do they do after that? He throws a party for him. He invites all of his friends and says, my son, he was lost, but now he's found, and this son who was lost is now invited into the banquet of the Father. And for those of us who are believers, we once were lost. We once tried to satisfy ourselves with the things of this world, but God rescued us and invited us into his family to eat at his table, to enjoy his celebration. So we can rejoice in what God has done in the past. Second, we see that Hannah shows us that we can rejoice in who God is in the present. There are a number of different things that Hannah says about who God is for us in the present. In verse 2, she says, there's no one like our God. He is beyond compare. She says, there's none holy like the Lord. There's none beside you. There's no rock like our God. In verse 3, she says that God is a God of justice who sees deeper than man sees. She tells us in verse 6 that he's the one who's sovereign over life and death. She says, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. She tells us in verse 8 that he's the great creator God. For the pillars of the, Lord, of, the Lord, of the earth are the Lord, she says, and on them he has set the world. That God is the creator who has built the foundation of the world. And so she says these great things about how high and mighty God is, that he's beyond compare, that he holds all this power as the creator God. And he's the God of justice and he's sovereign over all things. But then there's something else that she focuses in on and I think is even more important to her than those things. And that is the fact that God cares for the lowly. God cares for all who call upon him. In verse 4 she says that God cares for the weak. In verse 5 she says that God cares for the hungry and the barren. In verses 7 to 8 she states that God cares for the weak and the lowly. I mean, how great is it that the God who is mighty and holy and sovereign, he chooses to care for the weak and the lowly. You would expect that when Jesus came to the earth, that Jesus would come and hang out with all the people of political power and influence. People who had authority and money and prestige. But who did he hang out with? He hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes. The riffraff of society, the people that were forgotten about by the religious authorities. That's the kind of God that we serve, the God who comes to the lowly, who hears the cry of the broken, who's there for the oppressed. And so Hannah says it's not just that he's high and exalted, but he cares about even the insignificant. The scripture says he uses the weak to confound the strong. 1 Corinthians 1, 25 to 29, Paul says this, For consider your calling, brothers, 
Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing that, things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. And so we can rejoice in the fact, first, that God is powerful, that God is sovereign. He's the creator. He built the foundations of the earth. There's no one like him, but also that he hears us when we call upon him, that he cares about each and every one of us personally, so much so that he would send his son to die for us. So we can rejoice in the past of what God has done. We can rejoice in the present about who God is for us. We can also rejoice in the future of what God's going to do. Hannah speaks in verse 9 and 10 about the justice that God will bring to his righteous, to his faithful. That he'll uphold and protect the righteous and those who do evil he will judge. She also says something very interesting at the end of verse 10. She says, the Lord will judge the, end of the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and power to his anointed. What's interesting about that is there's no king in Israel at this point. There's no monarchy. There hasn't been a king ever in Israel. We're right in between the period of the judges and the period of the monarchy. And so the kingship is coming. But Hannah hasn't experienced that yet. And most likely, either she knew Deuteronomy chapter 17, which talked about the coming king, or it was revealed to her in some other way. But even though she hasn't seen it yet, she expresses confidence that the king is going to come. And when the king comes, that God is going to strengthen his king. So two things that Hannah speaks about coming in the future. Number one, the judgment of the wicked, the vindication of the righteous, and the coming of a king. Ladies and gentlemen, that's our future. That's what's happening for us. In the future, God is going to judge the living and the dead. In the future, the king is coming back. Jesus is going to come with a robe dipped in blood. And he's going to rescue his church. And the truth is, for those of us who are believers in Jesus, the future is incredibly good. It's incredibly glorious. I mean, think about it for a moment. This life is by far the worst thing we'll ever experience if we're believers, if we really believe the gospel, if we really believe the truth of what God has said. You know, we think about the book of Revelation, and sometimes we get our minds kind of twisted around where we're trying to figure out who this person is and who that person is, who's the Antichrist, when he's going to come, and what the tribulation is going to be like, and we get kind of freaked out. But we look at the end of the book of Revelation and we see, first of all, God wins. And we see, second, that God is going to do something incredibly glorious for his church. It's described in Revelation 21, 1 to 5. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. 
Also, he said, write these things down, for these words are trustworthy and true. These words are trustworthy and true. They're things that we can hold on to. If we really believe in this reality that God is coming back, that Jesus is coming back, that there's going to be a new heaven, a new earth, that he's going to wipe the tears away from our, our eyes, that we're going to be with him forever and ever, why wouldn't we rejoice? I mean, if we really believe that. It was a balmy day, October 1982, and uh, the Wisconsin, Wisconsin Badgers were playing Michigan State University. 60,000 fans packed into the stadium at the University of Wisconsin to watch their football team. But it, it became very obvious that Michigan State had a far better team uh, than Wisconsin. And so the score became lopsided really fast. But even though it, the score became lopsided, what was interesting is that as the game went on, that you would periodically hear these cheers in the crowd. And you think to yourself, why are they cheering when their team is getting run over? Well, it turned out they weren't cheering for that game. It turned out that a number of people had brought radios. And the Milwaukee Brewers were playing 70 miles away, and they were beating the St. Louis Cardinals in the Game 3 of the 1982 World Series. And so when they were cheering, they were cheering not for what they saw, but for what they heard and what they knew. There's two games going on. There's two stories being written. Which one do we focus on? Which one do we believe? The one that we see? The one that Satan wants us to believe that the world is going to hell in a handbasket and we have no hope, we should give up? Or the story that God is writing? That even in the midst of the darkness, God is redeeming a people. That God is going to bring us to himself. He's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. Do we believe these things? Do we believe the words that God has spoken to us? Because if we do, it ought to make us rejoice. We can rejoice in what God has done for us in the past. That he's rescued us, brought us into the kingdom of life. We can rejoice for who God is in the present. That he's great and powerful and beyond compare, but also that he hears our cry when we call him. And we can rejoice that we have an incredible, glorious future as believers. A future that's beyond compare. That Paul says, no eye has seen, no ear has imagined what God has in store. Do we believe these truths? Do we rejoice in them? Failure to rejoice may be a failure to believe. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you're going to do, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would take up the shield of faith, that we would trust and believe that what you say is true. And as we believe these things, as we hold these things as sure and as definite, that from that you would create joy in our hearts, that we would rejoice because of what you've done, what you're doing, and what you're going to do. God, you're a great God. We love you. We pray that we'd find our joy in you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.